Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Wonderful to have you at Summerhill Church. Uh, my name's Steve Frederick. I'm the um, senior minister here. Uh, if I haven't met you, it's particularly great to have you with us. Uh, and yes, we're working our way through Genesis. Um, and it'd be really handy, actually, if you had the passage open with you this morning. Uh, it's pay, uh, chapter 29. It's on page 31 uh, of your Bibles. And one of the reasons, it's always good to have it open, uh, partly this morning though, because we're actually looking at a big chunk of the next chapter uh, as well, and so it'll be very handy to have it there, so you can glance down it as we go. Uh, on your sermon outline, you'll notice that there's the usual QR code down the bottom corner, uh, and after the sermon uh, this morning, Lauren's going to be sharing a little bit of a reflection on an aspect of what we'll be looking at, uh, and if there are any questions, we might have a chance to see if we can address those as well. So please feel free to send your questions or comments through uh, as we work our way through today's passage. Um, I'm not sure that I would, um, you know, recommend the story from today for um, kind of any reality TV show. I think there'd be far too many issues of potential litigation. Uh, there's plenty that's uh, thoroughly illegal uh, and wouldn't have a chance of hopefully happening uh, in our world, but it's stunning, isn't it, uh, to read of a passage like this one. Athazagoraphobia, athazagoraphobia is the fear of being forgotten or overlooked by others. I guess you could say that FOMO, the fear of missing out, is kind of one version of athazagoraphobia, but it's chiefly other people that we fear being forgotten by, isn't it? Whether it's friends or family, whether it's colleagues or perhaps even God himself. There is a real fear that those we most love, those we most care about, might forget us or overlook us. We fear being forgotten or overlooked because of what it would communicate about our, our significance to them, about our place, about where we rank among their priorities, amongst their plans, in their pursuits. But it's especially bewildering when it's God's attentions and affections that seem to have wandered, that... God's favour towards us seems to have faded, perhaps, from view. Now, as Jacob departed for his uncle's house, you might remember last week we, we saw Jacob leaving home, departing for his uncle's house with the pretense of finding a wife, but really he is fleeing the murderous intentions of his older brother Esau, isn't he? God had appeared to Jacob as he was fleeing and had promised to constantly be with Jacob to be constantly watching attentively over him. And yet on the surface of things, it's hard to imagine anyone who seems more alone at this particular point than Jacob. I wonder if you noticed that as we read the first part of chapter 29. Uh, when Jacob's own father, Isaac, had gone looking for a wife, things had been very different to Jacob's experience here and now. Let me give you, this is a, a brief dot point uh, summary of how Isaac ended up finding a wife in a very similar manner. Uh, for Isaac, he hadn't even had to go and look for himself. A servant had been sent to go and do the hard work of negotiating a match for his own bride himself. He didn't even have to leave home. Jacob, on the other hand, has virtually been chased away from his homeland and told to go and take care of things himself. The servant who was looking for a wife for Isaac had gone with 10 camels laden with gifts and gold to pay for the dowry of this potential wife and to give as a gift for Laban to whom he was going to visit. 
And when the servant got to the well near Laban's place, the servant prayed that whichever woman gave him a drink, gave him and his camels a drink from the well, that God would have identified that woman as the perfect wife for Isaac. But for Jacob, it was thoroughly different. He went empty-handed, nothing in his hand to give as a gift to Laban or to pay for the dowry for a potential wife. And it was him, I wonder if you remember this, when he got to the well, it was him who had to remove the heavy stone by himself and he went and gave a, a drink to Rachel and watered her whole flock. There isn't anyone who's more alone than Jacob, someone who, at least on the surface of things, is doing it all in his own strength. Now, it doesn't take long for Jacob's uncle Laban, when Jacob does get to Laban's place, it doesn't take long for Jacob's uncle Laban to twig just how alone Jacob is, humanly speaking, at the very least. Have a look with me at this meeting between Jacob and Laban when it eventually happens. Verse 13 is where we pick up. Chapter 29, verse 13. As soon as Laban, that's Jacob's uncle, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Language very reminiscent of the way in which Adam and Eve spoke about being one flesh. Continuing on, after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, the last time that someone had come looking for a wife, when Abraham had sent a servant to find Isaac a wife, he'd come with 10 camels worth of gold and gifts. And when Laban thinks, I reckon, that he might again be benefiting financially from this visit, from this maybe a camel load of gold yet to come, he rushes out to greet Jacob and welcomes him as flesh and blood, as the most intimate of possible relatives that you could have imagined. But after a month, a whole month, Laban twigs that there is no payday following along behind Jacob like last time. Uh, Rebecca had originally said to Jacob, you might remember, go and stay with my brother just a few days and I'll send someone to come and call you home soon with your wife. But all appearances seem to suggest that Jacob has indeed been forgotten. Indeed, his mother never, ever does send someone to call him home. That call home never occurs. It never arrives. Uh, Laban's offer here to pay Jacob wages might at first appear to be a, a kind of an honourable offer, a generous kind of overture towards Jacob. But, but not only is Laban demoting Jacob from the status of flesh and blood, you don't pay your significant other a wage, do you? He's being demoted from being flesh and blood to being a hired labourer. He's clearly on the lookout, Laban's clearly on the lookout for an opportunity to exploit Jacob in his aloneness, to deviously exploit Jacob's obvious affection, it turns out, for the younger of his two daughters, Rachel. Have a look with me at verse 16. Verse 16. Uh, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, or as the footnote there mentions, perhaps delicate eyes, but Rachel 
had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Jacob here isn't crudely proposing that he purchase Rachel, but rather that by working as a servant for Laban, he might save up a dowry to officially complete the marriage agreement. Uh, This theme, this particular moment, is revisited again a little bit later on the story with some quite big significance. And Laban's acceptance of this proposal in the following verses isn't simply just an in-principle agreement. Laban has entered into a socially and legally a binding agreement with Laban that Rachel shall be his betrothed wife. A, A marriage that will be consummated just as soon as Jacob fulfills his obligation of providing a dowry. And it's an agreement, unfortunately, that Jacob's uncle Laban, clearly he never intends to honour it. For seven years later, under the cover of darkness, and likely under the influence of not a small amount of celebratory wine, Laban deceitfully slips his older daughter Leah into the bridal tent instead of Jacob's legally betrothed wife, Rachel. Now, in doing so, Laban deceives a family member, one who is his own flesh and blood, into 14 years of indebted servitude. That's what Laban is trying to pull here. Just as Jacob had had to endure the consequences of his mother's deceitful plans, so now Jacob is having to endure the consequences of his uncle's treachery as well. Of course, there are others who suffer the consequences of Laban's deceit to a far greater degree than Jacob himself does, aren't there? Several others, in fact. Have a look with me at verses 30 to 35. It's over the page if you're using your church uh, Bibles. Uh, Sorry, we'll read from verse 31. Oh no, I'll read from verse 30. Uh, We read, um, this is after uh, Jacob has worked another, uh, well, after um, Jacob has already been married to Leah for one week, uh, he is given Rachel in marriage as well. Uh, And at the beginning of that week, we read verse 30, Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved... He enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Jacob's favour for Rachel has heartbreaking consequences 
philia. But it's not to be understood as a moral failing on Jacob's part that he favours Rachel. It's Laban's treachery that has put Leah and Rachel in competition with one another. That is the real outrage of this passage. Leah is being used and has been used as a pawn in her father's attempt to leverage financial advantage out of his nephew's vulnerable circumstances. And yet it's clear, isn't it, that the Lord God himself expresses great compassion towards Leah in her circumstances. In response to the dishonour that she's suffering on account of her father's deceptive plans. Verse 31, the Lord saw Leah's grief. Verse 33, the Lord heard of her misery. Despite Leah's own expectations and fervent stated hope, the Lord never actually delivers to Leah what her own heart most longs for, that is Jacob's affections. She never receives that. But that certainly doesn't mean that God is insensitive or inattentive to Leah's sorrow. God showers upon her favour and honour in the birth of these sons, a favour and an honour that Jacob's own heart has failed to yield to her. Now, if Leah is jealous of Jacob's affections for Rachel, then it turns out that Rachel seems a little bit jealous, in turn, of God's attentiveness to Leah in the birth of her sons. Have a look with me at verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 1. Chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, "'Give me children or I'll die.'" Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. Uh, Rachel's outburst of anger and frustration with Jacob at not being able to bear children only serves to highlight that Jacob is completely powerless to bless where God himself hasn't first chosen to do so, something that Isaac never seemed to really pick up on quite. But true to family form, Rachel isn't about to let God's timetable get in the way of her plans. And so, like Sarah and Hagar before her, Rachel surrogates her servant Bilhah to bear children on her behalf. And Rachel boldly claims that her surrogate's children are a display of God's favour towards her. I wonder if you notice that. With no warrant at all, Rachel simply presumes to know God's mind on this matter. And in verse 6, she declares, God has vindicated me. And then again in verse 8, she says, God has given me the victory in this struggle with my sister. She's completely presuming to speak on God's behalf here. The passage tells us nothing about what God thinks of her plan. 
God takes no part in this competitive struggle that Rachel has instigated. And as we've seen several times over the course of Genesis, God won't either be manipulated or stage-managed into serving our own plans and purposes or vindicating our own ambitions. Uh, Tragically, instead of continuing to trust that God himself compassionately sees and hears her in her grief, Leah, Leah begins to imitate Rachel's surrogate strategy, presuming that she too can provoke or arouse God into doing her will in her timing. Uh, Just how horribly wrong this whole strategy goes, just how horribly warped the women's understanding of God's ways of working have become is illustrated by the rather bizarre little incident, I wonder if you noticed, of the mandrakes in verse 14. Have a look with me at verse 14 uh, and we'll read from there. Chapter 30, verse 14. We read, During the wheat harvest... Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Leah said to Rachel, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So she slept with her that so he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Now, this rather bizarre little incident illustrates just how increasingly twisted Rachel and Leah's understanding of God's ways of working have become. Uh, Mandrakes are really just uh, a root vegetable, uh, not a particularly inspiring root vegetable at that. Uh, So confident is Rachel, it seems, in her own surrogacy strategy for outbreeding her sister Leah that she seems completely unfazed at the thought of giving up her privileged access to the marriage bed in return for some tap roots and tubers instead. It's kind of not unlike the trade that Esau and Jacob made over lentil soup, is it? Despising an opportunity to be blessed greatly by God for the most meagre of meals. It's almost as if Rachel imagines that she's found a workaround for her fertility frustrations that doesn't depend upon God all that much at all. And likewise here, Leah presumptuously concludes that this pregnancy that results from this incident is God's reward for her making her servant a surrogate in her competition with Rachel for conception. Now, notice her exclamation in verse 18. Uh, in verse 18, uh, then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. But indeed, it wasn't that at all that made God attentive to her, but her cry, just a few verses earlier, that Rachel had taken her husband. It was that grief that the Lord listened to and answered. 
Leah's understanding of how God's works is so far off base that it doesn't bear thinking about. God has shown compassion towards Leah on account of her helplessness, her vulnerability, not because God favours those who help themselves and take matters into their own hands. Leah and Rachel each shamelessly presume that they've been able to secure God's patronage in pursuit of their own ambitions, claiming to see God at work where there is nothing but their own self-serving struggle with one another. Like Leah, people often presume, don't they, to claim God's support and sanction for their own longings and ambitions. Perhaps we can be quick to do the same, all the while failing to discern the true shape that God's attentive care for us takes. We're going to have a bit of a reflection on that later on uh, this morning. In fact, Lauren will take us through reflecting on the way in which we can sometimes do that. We can fail to discern the true shape that God's attentive care of us takes. It's only once this whole sorry affair begins to draw to a close, close, once Rachel and Leah have pretty much exhausted their self-sufficient struggling, once Leah's hopes of earning Jacob's affections have finally faded, once Rachel's hopes of bearing her own son have effectively been abandoned for good, it's only then that God finally and definitively takes action. Have a look with me at verse 22, right towards the end of this morning's passage. Chapter 30, verse 22. We read there, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. The Lord remembered Rachel. Right at the very last moment, after all the struggling has been said and done. This theme of God remembering his people will actually become a really central theme throughout the whole of the Old Testament. It's when God's people are most depleted. It's when God's people are most despairing, like when they're in slavery in Egypt. When they're most despondent, it's when God's people are most aware of their, that their own strength is insufficient, that God remembers them. And it's no coincidence that ultimately, it'll be this final son, Joseph, that God will later use to save Jacob's entire family from global famine that demonstrates, it exposes just how frail their self-sufficiency really is. It'll be this final son, whom no one had done anything to achieve, through whom God will save the entire family. Athazagoraphobia that I mentioned at the start of this morning, this fear of being forgotten and overlooked, is something that God's people Israel suffer from repeatedly, again and again and again, throughout their relationship with the Lord God. Faced with dire circumstances, often of their own foolish making, faced with the failures of their own plans and ambitions, the impotence of their own struggling and grasping after what God has to give, they often fear that God has forgotten them, that God has turned his face away from them, 
that God's compassionate attentiveness to their circumstances has finally at last worn out. And yet, friends, being overlooked or forgotten by God is not an anxiety that any of us need ever endure. For God has proven once and for all that He'll not fail to remember those who place their trust in Him. Uh, Have a look with me at the New Testament reading. It's going to pop up on the screen. I'm just going to read a few sections uh, of Luke chapter 1. A passage that reflects again on another unexpected pregnancy, one that happens only by God's doing on account of God remembering. We read when the angel visits Mary, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. A few verses later, we're told, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. A few verses further on, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful, he has remembered the humble state of his servant. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Friends, in the birth of the Lord Jesus, in the birth of God's favoured son, who is both a brother to us and a saviour, God has mercifully remembered us completely, finally, unfailingly. God has provided us with one who can secure us our place in God's family, just like Joseph secured Rachel's place in Jacob's family. God has provided us with one who can assure us that God will never forsake us, nor will He forget us. There is no need for us to grasp, as Leah and Rachel did, after our place in God's family. Friends, if we wish to be free from the anxious, anxious struggle... to to secure God's caring attention of us, we need only to look to the gift of His Son, who does all that we have need of to make us one of God's own precious children. Uh, As I mentioned, in a little while uh, after we've sung, uh, Lauren will get back up and uh, offer some reflections uh, flowing out of this passage and some of the themes that we've considered together about God's attentiveness to us. Uh, And if you'd like to, during the song, submit any questions or comments, you can do that via the QR code on your sheet. Let me pray for us. Dearest Father, we are so often gripped by an anxiety that those we most care about might forget or overlook us. And Father, we confess that that is a doubt we sometimes hold towards you as well, questioning whether you really are attentive to us, whether you really do notice us, whether you perhaps, Father, have overlooked us. And yet, Father, in the giving of your Son, you have shown that you are attentive to us in a way that will never become distracted, in a way that assures us we will never be forgotten. For you have given us your favoured son, the son most precious to you, 
that we might be secure in our place in your family, in your household as well. Father, help us to look to your favoured son and him find security in our place amongst your people. And in his name we pray. Amen.